This is the National Museum's Liverpool podcast, where we thread together stories from our collections with people's experiences in Liverpool today, exploring connections between the past and present. I'm Megan India McGurk, and today we're talking about hair. Whether it's the combed quiff of Elvis or the voluminous fro of disco diva Diana Ross, hair has immense power to attract and impress. A status symbol for the celebrity, and even a tool to shock the fashion world, it's a clue into society in ages gone by and has been used as a metric to segregate races, to deny human rights and freedom. Hair is not just hair. To understand this, we start in the Roman period, when coins spread the latest fashion in hairstyling. Here's local broadcaster Nina Franklin. Styling one's hair is as old as time. Whether we're emphasising our beauty, our power, our social standing or our heritage, the way we wear our hair is a display of identity, feeling and self-expression. The Romans especially loved their hair, curling, crimping and pinning it into extensive and elaborate styles, dyeing it with henna or saffron or even bleaching it with pigeon dung. To find out a little more about the hairstyles of Rome, I sat down with Liz Stewart, lead curator of archaeology and the historical environment at the Museum of Liverpool, to talk about some of the Roman coins in the museum's collections and how we know about Roman fashion today. Yeah, so if we look at the Roman period, there is a lot of evidence that people were really interested in fashion and uh, expressing their identity through their fashion. And so we've got evidence of things like jewellery, we've got evidence of things like sculptures, which might show people, um, and then we've got these coins, which obviously show individuals who are at the highest ranks of of Roman society and presumably expressing the most kind of elite and stylish kind of hair fashions. Well, we see hairstyles kind of changing over time. So the very first woman depicted on a coin was uh, Fulvia in 83 BC. And she has her hair kind of tied back in a, in a loose uh, bun that I think it's sometimes known as a chignon, uh, a bun with uh, kind of twists down the side of her hair. And that then is a bit of a kind of um, example for, for future uh, rulers and, and leaders who, who want to kind of evoke that, that kind of fashion. Um, but you do see these variations over time. So there, there are certainly some sort of parameters that they all seem to follow you know they all have long hair and they all tie it up you know so you see that kind of across the board across the whole of the sort of roman period and and you have to bear in mind that the roman period is 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 long you know the roman um, period of rule in in britain is as long as from the death of shakespeare to now so it's a it's a long period of time in which you see this use of coin, roman coinage and um a lot of these kind of consistent rules about, you know, people being shown with their hair tied up. Uh, they tend to slightly cover their ears, which is probably, you know, sort of a part of the fashion, not to not to show your ears, maybe. You know, they've got they've got certain rules that they kind of follow, but within those kind of parameters, they they express themselves in, in different ways by showing off their curls or showing off the twists in their hair, showing off the, the decorations in the hair, the pearls and things like that, which would have been, you know, so sought after. Um, you know, really kind of high quality um, luxury items. The hairstyles we have evidence of are mainly the hairstyles of the rich and the famous, the powerful and the influential. One fashionable lady in particular, Faustina II, is someone we see a lot of, including on a number of coins housed at the Museum of Liverpool. 
Faustina II is a really interesting um, empress. So she is wife of Marcus Aurelius. She's mother of Commodus. So he's the the emperor who's in the film Gladiator. If you think think of that sort of story, and she's she actually appears in Gladiator as well. She's they called her the the mother of the camp. So when the the Romans were out kind of campaigning and expanding their empire, she often travelled with them and and was uh, had a, had a real role with the soldiers as well. And she uh, has coins issued in her lifetime that have several different hairstyles. So she has kind of wavy hair going into a bun. She has twists going into a bun. She often has different hair decorations. So you'd have beads sometimes on the pearls often um, or headdresses. Um, so you have different things at different points. And then also you have them continuing to be issued after her death. Diva Faustina coins are issued after her death. Um, and in some of those she's wearing a veil, um, which perhaps has a, a different symbolism. And in others she has kind of new hairstyles which weren't seen before so you know they're updating her fashion even after she's died in 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 honoring her um in in issuing these these new coins so obviously uh, Faustina the second being the empress was at the very kind of elite uh, level and so her image appears on coins which would have been seen by people across the whole of the Roman Empire but also she is represented in numerous sculptures so you see her hairstyles on, on those as well and you get exactly the same kind of pattern of her changing her hairstyle quite frequently uh, having different decoration in her hair so pearls or um, headdresses at different points um, and it's actually been sort of recorded that there are n- nine different hairstyles that are seen on her on her sculpture one theory that was put forward was that it might represent the different children that she had she had 13 children and one theory was put forward that her hairstyles might change as she has she has a new child but nobody's managed to kind of map those to the right dates to to really prove that that's that that's the case so we don't know what what kind of spurs her on to change her hairstyle to have those kind of regular uh, kind of changes or frequent changes in, in hairstyle is is quite interesting and so sort of probably shows that she really was quite interested in what she was putting out there about herself through her hair and and, and that was part of part of her identity but what about for everybody else i asked liz what fashion might have been like for those who weren't all empresses what about folks from around these parts? Um, Roman brooches in this this region are sort of copies of, of Roman styles from um, from the Roman Empire in, in Europe, but they're kind of given their own local kind of twist. So you get a type of brooch, it's called the Wirral brooch, which has got a particular kind of checkerboard decoration on it. So you're saying, yeah, I'm Roman, but I'm Romano-British and I'm from the Wirral area. And, you know, you're really expressing your identity with that. The trouble really is that we don't have a lot of evidence for what the ordinary people like or what the um, Romano-British people were like. So we know what the, the Romans from Rome were like because they send these coins across the whole empire and sort of spread this this message about their their style very, very kind of broadly. Um, but it's very, very rare for us to see local women particularly depicted um there was one really nice rare example that we do have from this region which is um a woman named Vedica who um is represented on a tombstone so there's a sculpture showing her she died in the mid first century AD and uh, there's an inscription describing that she was of the Cornovi tribe which was a tribe in, in Cheshire um and you can see her hair is very very different to, to say Faustina's although that's a hundred years later she has these long braids which go down the sort of sides of her chest very very long kind of um braided hair and um, so completely different kind of fashion um into to what what would be seen on on coins of the same period 
I found it interesting that Liz mentioned we knew about Roman hairstyles in Rome because of the coins that they sent around the empire. Of course, currency was someone that everybody used from all levels of society and that everyone kept in their pockets. So in this way, coins were a valuable marketing space. They could be used as propaganda or as billboards. And in fact, coins haven't actually changed all that much between then and now. So if you look at a coin in your purse now, it is very much kind of a, a very formulaic system, isn't it, of having, you know, the queen, the ruler on one side and then an image on the other side. And that's exactly what we had in, in the Roman period. Um, it was the Romans, really, who first introduced currency in a really widespread way in Britain. Um, pre- previously to that, you know, it would have been barter and trade rather than actual kind of metal coins that, that would, have been, would have been used most commonly. So you have um, these coins being introduced and it's a completely new way of of spreading messages across the whole empire. So you'll receive coins in Britain, for example, which might record a victory in a whole different area of the of the empire where they've taken some new control and it, it sends a message about the power of the empire, the power of the emperor. Um, and so yeah, it's it it is that kind of that leveling factor that it is something that will be seen across the whole country. Um, Largely coins are brought in uh, as pay for for soldiers. Um, So whether they're actual sort of Roman soldiers of the empire or auxiliary soldiers who are recruited more more locally as well, um, they will often be paid in in coinage and that's how it sort of starts to to spread. And we have six coins in the archaeology collection at the Museum of Liverpool which are from a a hoard from Knutsford in Cheshire and um, they, they all represent Faustina at different points so they all have slightly different hairstyles of, of Faustina and they're ones that were possibly the pay of a soldier which um, were buried for safekeeping and then not recovered for nearly 2,000 years <laughs> so you know that, that sort of reveals a whole a whole story of um, you know why were they buried what did they mean to somebody what did that person think when they looked at those coins and saw these pictures and saw these hairstyles and saw these fashions you know what what was that a message that, that they were receiving it's a really kind of it's a great kind of mysterious story really with over nine hairstyles throughout her life, Faustina II probably knew as well as anyone today that, rightly or wrongly, how we style our locks is about more than just looks. Nothing could be more true than when it comes to black hair. In our next story, Rebecca Loy explores the politicisation of Afro hair. Hi, my name is Rebecca Loy. I'm the diversity and inclusion partner at National Museums Liverpool, as well as a community activist. Wearing an afro to many is a sign of political resistance or an affiliation to a pro-black identity. To me, it's mainly my hair when I wake up in the morning. Is a decision to not manipulate one's natural appearance a political decision? With black hair, it all seems political. There's a lot of history behind this. It is well documented that among different countries and tribes in Africa, hairstyles denoted class and tribe age, ethnicity, wealth, debt, and fertility. As enslaved Africans entered the Americas, hair was often cut. One reason for this was the hygiene after leaving a slave ship. But what was also true was that stripping identity was a form of social control. Just like removing tartan or kente, or enforcing people to speak English, Cutting the hair of an African, which held such social and symbolic significance, was a colonial act of finance. The Tinian laws of 1786 enforced women of colour 
to wear a headscarf as a symbol of belonging to the enslaved classes, whether they were free or not. Still to this day, people are fighting to counter the lawfully encoded inferior status of black bodies. The Crown Act of 2019 in California aims to create a respectful and open workplace for natural hair. It's only in the last decade that Google had to change its algorithm as when typing professional workplace hairstyles for women, pictures of white women with straight hair would appear and unprofessional styles were encoded as curly Afro hair on black bodies. Afro hair has evolved to be highly effective scalp protection against sun rays. Many African diaspora are being reunited with the products of their ancestral environments, which their hair evolves around, such as shea butter, ahoba oil, and rasul clay. There are fresh waves of resisting the politicization and classification of black bodies through hair, and many are celebrating our gravity-defying, sun-protecting crowns. I spoke to Malika Raghunarobi, social activist, social worker by profession, and junior project manager of the race equality team for the Combined Authority. She is continuing this amazing work through the creation of Crowned. Crowned is an event boosting education and celebrating the history and beauty of black hair. First of all, I asked her, how did this journey start for her? What started my kind of, I suppose, journey in discovering and exploring how important black hair was, was when I started to become a young professional. Um, I've obviously grown up around black women and, and black males who have had Afro hair within my family and within my community. And my granddad is a Rasta. He's got dreads down to his ankles. Um, you know, I've got family members who have got Afros from like what you'd see in the 70s. And, and it's never been something that's been necessarily um, something that would stand out to me and, and so on. But when I become a young professional, I noticed that when I would go into these professional spaces, hair was always pointed out to me so people would always be like oh my god your hair mm, I kind of felt like yeah I was appreciated at first so thanks for the, the lovely comments on my hair but then it, it quickly grew into annoyance it was like I'm professional in this space you know I've come here because I'm able to do this profession and the focus was on my hair which isn't something that I necessarily took as a bad thing at first because I definitely do feel like your hair is a huge part of your identity however it was kind of in a way overshadowing me as an individual in terms of how these other people was perceiving me here. I've always known there's been discrimination in regards to black and Afro hair, but I suppose when I started going into spaces that were more white or less diverse and people was often commenting on my hair in these professional spaces, I was like, I am somebody who hasn't got necessarily Afro hair, yet my hair is big, it's curly, it's long, my hair is beautiful, but my hair is a lot less Afro in terms of texture than my family members is. So I was thinking if I get all this attention over my hair, what's it like for these? Malika explained how she became aware of the political nature and discrimination involved in having black hair and how this influenced her to want to do something about the discrimination that she and the people she knew faced. I asked Malika why feeling this discrimination fueled her to begin Crowned. 
So crowns is a is a positive affirmation, lift up, elevating social event that I created. So I literally wanted to try and create a bit of a community. Um, and I wanted to try and create a space where we talked about some of the barriers that people who wear their natural hair from the black community and not just the black community as well, because there are other communities that have hair that's not generically straight um but i wanted to try and create a social space where we can come together quite informally just enjoy each other you know have good food and good conversation share tips share tricks i got some of my cousins who specialize in afro platen um i got here to come and do a few demonstrations and different types of weaving and different types of braiding and i got in touch with a few different um black owned salons so like Paige Rigby salon for example down in Picton um but I wanted to create a space with crowns where we could come together share the tips share the tricks of what we do to our hair to maintain our natural beauty so yeah me main me main motivation for crowns as well was young people and a friend of mine um she went through the foster care system and was a black girl with afro hair and was placed with a white family who never knew how to do her hair um so seeing young black people placed in families that didn't know how to do their hair and so therefore they began to hate their hair so therefore it become a point of embarrassment for them rather than embracing it um so it was kind of all of these things that that encouraged me to do crowns I asked Malika what was the importance of celebrating black beauty and she gave such a rich answer delving into the historical significance of black beauty and black bodies. Black beauty is significant for me because I feel like it's something that is fetishized by other cultures sometimes and I feel like when black women do things it's not lapped up or welcomed or people don't celebrate it as much a um, classic example is Kim Kardashian with her cornrows you know everybody thought this was a great innovative kind of hairstyle and it looked amazing whereas other black women are told that same hairstyle is unprofessional so Black beauty to me is so important because of the discrimination they faced and the challenges and the barriers. And, you know, people people are kind of treated as second-class citizens for how they're perceived face value, whereas other people, like celebrities and so on, who rip the same culture are treated as, like, trailblazers in the fashion and iconic industry. It's like, no, it's, it's actually what we've been doing for years. When I started kind of looking into black hair and discrimination based off my own experiences I was thinking I'm a light-skinned black woman who hasn't got the most afro hair so I'm no way the best advocate I suppose for black hair but I thought no one else is doing it there's an opportunity why not do it and put on this great event it's, it's very important to me and everything that I do to understand what's gone before us because sometimes when you know where you've come from it influences where you can go so I took us took a little research kind of day and realized that like you know there was laws back in the day that black women couldn't have their hair on show because white men was attracted to it and so they made them cover the hair then I started exploring that there was a pencil test so where slave owners had children with black women they did determine your blackness by if a pencil would stick in your hair or not if the pencil slid out and you'd be classed as a worthy citizen and almost white um but if the pencil stuck and didn't slide through your curls then you were classed as a slave still or as a second class citizen which is just I couldn't imagine you're definitely not getting a pencil to fall out of my hair um as fair as I am and then I looked at discrimination 
Next, I was looking at, you know, how dreadlocks are perceived, how they're perceived to be unprofessional, how they're perceived to be dirty. And then I looked at other hairstyles where they're deemed to be unprofessional, which I thought was just an absolute joke because I thought I'm reading this whilst our current prime minister's got hair like that. So yeah, I was just looking around at all this research and I just thought, I wonder if people knew that. I wonder if people knew where we had come from and the struggles that we had had with our hair. You know, if you want to go even further back to the times of slavery in terms of you were defined sometimes by what tribe you were from, by the pattern that was braided into your hair. There was roads to freedom allegedly patterned into people's braids also when you knew that you was about to go on a long voyage you wouldn't know where you'd end up so mothers would braid rice and beans into the children's hair or the sister's hair or whoever was next to them you know as a as a way of being able to eat because you don't know how long you're going to be on that ship for and then when you did land wherever you landed you didn't know if you was getting a meal but at least you had rice and beans in your hair so you could do something to survive and try and make yourself maintain that little bit further and then I looked at things like where people had had the hair shaved when they did arrive at places so it was stripping them of all their identity stripping them of kind of if you had a certain hairstyle you would be connected to a certain tribe that was taken away from them i just feel like now after everything that black women have gone through in society i'm keeping my hair natural the way it is i just feel like i owe i owe them the 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 kind of i just feel like i owe it to them to do it you know to show me hair in its natural form and that's no shade if you don't want to wear your hair natural you've got to do what makes you feel empowered it's your crown at the end of the day um but yeah my me, me overarching reason for doing it was was definitely to show people in terms of where we've come from um and and try and encourage people to take up the natural hair going forward and, and just take care of it i thought it was beautiful that malika used the title crowns for this event as we've learned black hair was used as a political and legal conduit to force black people to being the lowest members of society so using the same conduit black hair with royal symbolism seems a profoundly poetic and empowering reversal. Racism has been ingrained into our society because of what happened around the world with transatlantic slavery and how black people were seen as less than worthy across the world. I feel like if we looked at who we were before the involvement of the transatlantic slavery or, you know, before any involvement from the West, we were kings and queens and you know people of importance i always say they never took slaves from africa they took doctors nurses teachers priests you name it they took it so it's important for me that we do use positive words when we're talking to ourselves and talking about our culture i just felt like the positive words crowned royalty reaffirms that positive message that we're trying to drive home you know put some power onto your crown Thank you to Malika and Rebecca for giving such a rich description of the importance of celebrating black hair. If you want to find out more about Malika's events, you can head to her Instagram page, Elevate, that's spelt with the number eight. Now, from the profound to the bizarre, our final story takes a look at how hair can cause a ruckus in the fashion world when its provocative use in the Miss Liverpool dress stirs a mix of reactions from viewers. Here's Daniel Delabastide. Hi, I'm Daniel Delabastide, and I'm a Liverpool-based photographer with a keen interest in subcultures within fashion and Liverpool's creative scene. Last year, I photographed at the Vogue Ball in the World Museum, so I thought I knew a thing or two about fashion. In 2012, the museum acquired the alternative Miss Liverpool dress. It's a staggering piece of art meets fashion, 
For a start, it's huge, even massive. Two meters across and covered in crystals. It made quite the impact. And what's more, it's made entirely of human hair. I spoke with Pauline Rushton, head of decorative arts, who looks after the fashion collection at National Museums Liverpool, to ask her a bit more about this most unusual object. Well, we um, acquired this dress in 2012, but it had been made um, a year earlier in, in 2011 for the Alternative Miss Liverpool competition, which was part of the Homotopia Festival that year. In terms of Homotopia, for, with which we're, we've been partners for 10 years now or more. And it was also the work of a Liverpool dressmaker, Thelma Medine. So she created the dress with um, a guy called Ryan Edwards, who at the time was the artistic director at Voodoo, uh, her, her salon in um, Bold Street. And we just thought this was a really, well, it is a unique piece of work, basically, and something that we wanted to have in our collection because it, it's kind of, um, it met the, the conditions of our collecting policy in a couple of ways. Early on in museums, they would only ever show human hair in a sort of, um, way that's linked to death. Talk about m memorial hair, um, things to do with mourning in, in particular in Victorian times. More recently, what's been happening is that there's been displays which really examine and, and explore hair in a cultural sense. So they're looking at you know different societies or different um, cultural groups and what they think about hair and beauty and identity and so on. And you know that that has a different impact upon people when they see hair in that context. It's a huge dress. It's it's an enormous size. So there's about twelve uh, nylon petticoats. Um, it weighs about thirty pounds. You know, if you think about fifteen bags of sugar, if you were trying to carry those around on you, you know, that's the kind of weight you're talking. We're talking about. Um, it's a multicolored dress. It's got two hundred and fifty meters of human hair extensions, and you know, it's 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 got an impact when you see it. It's really aesthetically quite you know amazing people really reacted to the hairiness of the dress in particular they were kind of revolted by the fact it was human hair this is an in, an interesting one because it's all about context of course if you think about um a hairstyle for example where you might admire somebody's hairdo if you saw their hair in 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 the drain in uh, say the shower or something you would have you probably recoil you'd have a different reaction to that and it's all about context really so what we found was that the hairiness of something is what provokes the reaction. If something's made of human hair but doesn't look like it is potentially, um, it doesn't seem to provoke the same reaction. It's the fact that it's it's a very, um, I don't know, it's, it's part of somebody's body. So I think that's part of the revulsion of it as well. Looking at other museums and what they've done in terms of display, um, there's quite a few examples of this over the past, what, 20, 30 years maybe? And the reactions are interesting. So, for example, there's been um, an exhibition in, I think it was Amsterdam, a few years ago, where there was a particular artist who showed a pair of shoes, which had, um, they were made of like a silica, and she'd put human hair into them um, very, very specifically, so that it looked like they were growing out of the shoes. And th this provoked a lot of reaction from people, and you know, they really were kind of repulsed by it because it looked like it was growing from the shoes, and the shoes were flesh-coloured as well. So again, it's, it's about the hairiness of something really. And I think most recently, a good example of this, that this, this reaction is provoked even when it's not real hair as well. If it looks like real hair, still the reaction is there. I think it was Changing Rooms last year did um, a makeover of a room where 
they hung examples of human hair, uh, it was extensions, on the walls. And again, that provoked a lot of reaction from viewers who were revolted by it online. You know, they're sort of making comments saying, who in the hell would have that in their house? So, so even when it's not real hair, when it's not real human hair and it could be synthetic, it does still have that reaction if it looks like human hair. The fact that Pauline highlighted that this hair was part of someone's body was so intriguing. We know about the designers, Thelma and Ryan. We know about why the dress was made. But what about the humans? The source material, so to speak. Where does this hair come from? So the, the hair extensions on our dress, they are real human hair. And they were all treated, um, dyed different colours by Ryan Edwards when he was making the dress with Thelma Medine. So um, this would be something that all hairdressers would, would be ignorant of really they, they wouldn't be able to know exactly where those hair extensions come from because it's a huge worldwide trade in um, hair that's come from many different sources um, the trade in hair it, it extends across places like India China Southeast Asia some of it comes from places like Ukraine and Russia um, even Romania there's a whole range of countries where the hair could be actually have its origin now, when we put the dress on display in both of the galleries, we were aware of this trade. Obviously, we didn't know exactly where the hair was from in our particular dress. So we, we put out um, um, a display label that said it was drawing people's attention to the fact that this was the case, that this is an international trade. We didn't know where it was from. Some of it could be unethical in that, for example, there is um, a school of thought that in, we don't know how true this is, but in Russia, for example, in some of the prisons, women have their hair forcibly shaved to be sold into the hair trade. Now, you know, we don't know how much truth there is in that, but that's um, an accusation that's been made. So being aware of that, we, we made sure we put that onto the label to make sure our visitors um, were aware of it. A lot of it comes from India, where it's temple hair. It's hair that's given by devotees to their local temple as an act of, um, uh, an act of piety, giving thanks to, to the gods. And they give it freely. They don't sell the hair to the temple. But the temple then has all of this hair available. And they do sell it. They do make a lot of money out of this in the temples, in, in South India in particular. And then the hair is sold on, usually to places like China, where it's um, processed, it's treated in lots of different ways. And then it's sold back into the Western European market in, in all sorts of uh, different ways, right across Europe. And... That's why people who are in the bit that the hairdressing business, they don't know where the hair has come from because it's from so many different sources. You would never be able to trace the actual root of any particular packet of hair extensions that you might have. And it's interesting because in terms of the retail side now, what's happening is you see descriptions like organic hair or ethical hair being used to sell these, these extensions with the implication that this has been sourced in, a, in an ethical way, which might, might not be the, the case, actually, because the people selling those um, extensions wouldn't know where the actual trade route is and how it's happened, not in all of its detail, because it's so massive. So it, that, that's an interesting kind of aspect of the retail side of hair extensions. So that's probably where the hair on our dress has, has, has come from into a Liverpool salon. It's part of somebody's body, so could it be considered human remains effectively? And the answer to that is that no, under the 2004 Human Tissue Act, um, anything that's taken from a, a person's body like hair or nails, for example, a, a living person, somebody who's still alive, is not considered human remains. So the hair on the dress that we have, 
will most certainly have been taken from someone who's probably still alive today. It might be hundreds of people's hair, in fact. So in that sense, it's not considered human remains and it doesn't have the same protection, if you like, that you know, in terms of museum collections and um, the storage of things, which is, is very much um, protected and um, there, there are lots of sort of um, rules and regulations around how you deal with human remains in museum settings. So something like this wouldn't qualify in the same way. But um, this is an interesting point that if, if in 100 years' time we still have the dress, and we, there's no reason why we wouldn't because museums don't get rid of things in, you know, very easily. We have them for hundreds of years. Technically, um, it would then become human remains, I imagine. So you, we would have to, you know, whoever in the future is looking after it would have to be mindful of that particular point as well. It's just another sort of angle on it, really. Human hair lasts for thousands of years. It doesn't break down like a lot of other materials do. So that's why you find hair still in, you know, Egyptian tombs from 3,000, 4,000 years ago. And it's not a type of material that easily disintegrates even when the rest of the body has disappeared but there is a happy ending I suppose in a way to the story of um, all these hair extensions that are drifting around the western world <laughs> because now scientists have found a way of recycling them and they make them into these sort of hairy mats that can be used um, to mop up oil spills so that there is a good use for them they can benefit the environment if, effectively if they're used in that way but yeah it, it is a material that does last for a very long time it started to dawn on me just how alternative the alternative Miss Liverpool dress really was. To one person, it might speak of glamour and performance. To others, it might evoke confusion or even disgust. Whichever way you might feel about it, there's no doubt that the story of our hair, how we trade it, style it, or wear it, can say so much about where we come from. You're forgiven if a hairy dress isn't your style, but I hope you can still feel like an empress twisting your hair into a wavy bun like Faustina II. Claim your crown as you celebrate your Afro hair in an expression true to you, or rock the bald look if you decide it's a little more trouble than it's all worth. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more stories like this, you can support us by making a donation or becoming a member at liverpoolmuseums.org.uk slash join and support. Thanks for listening to the National Museums Liverpool podcast and remember to check out the other episodes in this series.